Well, thank you so much for uh, coming out this morning, being with us. And it's an interesting thing that, you know, about 2 billion people roughly all over the world, all different cultures, educational levels will gather in, in some way. Uh, this will be a very significant day for them. That just means that there's about 5 billion people for whom it's not. And it's just like if we look in the Western world that we set our calendars by the advent of this particular person who we focus on today. And when you look at it from a historical perspective, it's interesting. It was a Jewish peasant carpenter, and he's executed by the Imperial Roman Empire. And yet here we are, about 2,000 years later, and people from every tribe and nation, like we saw in that earlier verse, and every educational level, every experiential level, you'll find people that consider this the most important thing that happened in human history. So when you look at it like that, a peasant Jewish carpenter who's executed by the Roman Empire, why is he any different than the other hundreds of thousands that the Roman Empire executed? I mean, at the destruction of Jerusalem alone in 70 AD, they executed hundreds of thousands of Jews. So why is this so significant? Or, or is it? Well, you kind of have to know the rest of the story before it makes any sense at all. I mean, before this human being called Jesus of Nazareth, before he came along, if you looked at human history, the thousands of years, everything was pretty much the same. Human beings struggled most every day of their life just to make a living, just to eke out a little bit of happiness, dying of all kinds of diseases and accidents and war and crimes and things of that nature. And there was really not much hope for anything better than that. It just was what it was. And then all of a sudden, or approximately some 2,000 years ago, this, this person comes along, Jesus of Nazareth. Right from the start, all kinds of rumors start to spread around that, that this was no ordinary person. Rumors that he was actually a, a hybrid, that his father was not a human being at all, but deity, and that his mother was a virgin. Pretty soon as he starts to grow up and become a young man, everyone that knows him is clear that he is so, so different. He's totally human, but he's not like, he's just not like everyday people in the sense that no one, not his parents, not his enemies, no one could find one incident in his entire life where he ever did anything that could be called wrong. In other words, even his enemies couldn't accuse him of having ever sinned. It was a different kind of a life. You know and I know that's just not the way it is for most human beings, for all human beings, let's be frank. And then the reason that this event is so significant is that as he started his ministry as a young man, he did things that the planet had never seen before. I, I mean, he, he could manipulate atoms. He could manipulate molecules and, and cells in human bodies. People came to him with every kind of disease knowable, diseases that were considered utterly incurable, and, and he could somehow manipulate the, the atoms and the molecules and the cells and cure these people evidently with just pure thought. The planet had never seen anything like this before. He, he defied the, the laws of physics. There, there were occasions where there was a storm at sea, and he walked on top of the surface of the water. Sometime, there was this little kid that just had his lunch, and, you know, he had a couple 
loaves of bread and some fish. And Jesus takes this stuff, defying the laws of physics, multiplies it, and feeds over 5,000 men. We don't know how many women or children were there. He, he at one point was with his disciples at a storm on the sea. And it's a fierce storm. His disciples who were experienced fishermen, they're afraid they're going to die and drown at sea. He is asleep. He's that calm. But he wakes up and he speaks a word and instantly stops this storm, defying all the laws of physics. He didn't, he didn't make sense in this regard. There were three occasions where people actually died. They, they left their bodies, their souls, their spirits, however you want to look at it, were gone. One guy was in the tomb for four days. And Jesus brought these people back to life. He, he reanimated them. Call it whatever you want. The planet had never seen anything like this. Listen to me. Nobody today, of the two billion people that will stop and pause and give thought to this event today, no one would have if there was not great historical uh, compelling evidences that this one life actually occurred. The truth of the matter is there were thousands, thousands of eyewitnesses for all these things we call miracles that this one human, if it's safe to call him that, he was all human but all divine and that kind of gets into his claims. Not only did he do things that no one else had done, he made claims for himself that no one dare make unless they are truly unique. I mean, he claimed that when Moses saw that burning bush and encountered God and God spoke to him from the burning bush, he claimed he was the God that spoke to Moses from the burning bush. He claimed to be the creator. He said that anyone that had seen him in flesh had seen the Father, the creator of the universe. He claimed that he had the power to forgive sins, and in case his enemies didn't believe it, the person whose sins he forgave was paralyzed, and he instantly restored this person from a life of paralysis. The rest of the story is what makes the death of this Jewish carpenter so significant. His teaching. He taught things. He taught the truth about God, the truth about life. He made it clear. He made it simple. The ordinary people thronged to him. They loved him. And that was the other thing about him. The religious people of Jesus' day, and we're going to talk a little bit about the difference between religion and, and real relationship with the Creator. The religious people of Jesus' day, they pretty much had compelled the people to think that God did not like them, that they could never measure up, they could never be good enough. I'm sure some of you grew up in households where you felt you could never be good enough. Maybe you've been in churches where you felt like you could never be good enough. But here Jesus was, this one who was so distinctly different from anyone that had ever come before, who claimed to be God in flesh, <laughs> and he liked people. He liked all kinds of people. He liked the people that the religious leaders despised. He liked the prostitutes. He liked the crooked tax collectors. He liked the down and outers. He liked everyone. And this was a, this was a shocking truth. So shocking was it that it, it started to be called the good news. We have a word, the gospel today. We have the gospel, the good news. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, four books of the New Testament are called the Gospels or the Good News. And the good news is that God likes ordinary people and welcomes ordinary people just as we are. Broken, sinful, full of troubles, full of confusion, full of doubts. He, he doesn't just love us. I have a problem sometimes. I can think generically of God loving me. Oh, yeah, you love me. You love everybody. But he likes us. 
his whole life on earth witnessed that. The people that he welcomed and, and ate meals with, it was a scandal of his day to the religious sorts. But that's the good news. The good news is this is what God is really like. This is who he is. The good news is that God likes and welcomes people just as we are without any improvement or change at all. But that's not really the end of the story. You see, he kept predicting for some three years that he would ultimately be crucified by the religious leaders and the Romans. And, and ultimately it happened just the way he said, but he always predicted each time that he would rise from the dead on the third day. Now, that's quite a claim. To predict your own death and then to predict that you would rise from the dead. And yet, that is exactly what the historical evidence compels an open-minded person to believe. Let me, let me go to a portion of Scripture. I'm going to go to a portion of Scripture in the New Testament. I'm going to read you some things, and then I'm going to share with you what some of these evidences for this miraculous rising from the dead of this miraculous person, uh, why it is so believable, so trustworthy. There's a book called 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It'll be page 1,297 if you happen to have those Bibles on your chair. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, I'm not sure why the page number's not there, I'll, I'll repeat it again, it's 1,297. If you got, got one of those Bibles, 1,297. And this is written about 27 years after Jesus had actually ridden, risen from the dead. And it was written by a man named the, the Apostle Paul, he once was called Saul of Tarsus, an enemy of Christ. But it starts out like this. Paul says, now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel that I preach to you that you receive. Remember that word gospel means good news. The good news, God is like Jesus. The good news, God likes people. The gospel I preach to you that you received and on which you stand and by which you are, what does it say? Two words, being, can you say it with me? Being saved. It's important. This is a process. If you hold, here's the condition, if you hold firmly to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now he's going to talk about the message. Now this is a condensation. This is a small version. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John are the full bodies of the whole good news about what God's like, what his kingdom is like, how he feels about people. But he condenses it by saying, for I passed on to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ, or the Messiah, the one promised all throughout the Old Testament to come, he died for our sins according to the Scriptures. The Old Testament had predicted the sacrificial death of the Messiah or the Christ. And that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, that's another name for Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at one time. 500 eyewitnesses, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Christian terminology for death. By the way, Jesus, when he rose from the dead, he didn't just show himself alive from the dead for a few days to a few people. The book of Acts in the New Testament says he showed himself ongoing for 40 days. 40 days he kept appearing, demonstrating that he was in fact alive from the dead. Verse 7, it says, then he appeared to James. James was Jesus' half-brother who was not his follower when Jesus was alive, but who becomes a staunch follower of Jesus and a leader in the church in Jerusalem because he saw his half-brother resurrected from the dead. 
Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as though one born at the wrong time, he appeared to me. That's the apostle Paul talking. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. And we'll stop there. So in this little list, the apostle Paul is is telling the important thing to know that the God of the universe, the Messiah, the Christ, the creator, he loves human beings. He loves human beings so much that he would become human, live for 33 years, demonstrate the depths and riches of his love, prove his trustworthiness, prove his goodwill for us, prove that he loves us more than we even love ourselves, that he wants what's best for us and knows what's best for us, and he would prove it by going all the way to allowing himself to be humiliated, beaten, and finally nailed to a cross and enter into death. He says in John 10, he says, nobody can take my life from me, but I'm going to lay it down, and I'm going to take it back up again. He laid it down to show to you and to me and every human being that our God, our creator, has a sacrificial, unselfish love for us. He doesn't need anything from us. He wants to give everything to us. A slanderous idea had been planted in the minds of human beings way back in the beginning, way back in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. It says that this evil, angelic being came into the garden, slandered God, said that God was depriving Adam and Eve of all that they could have in life, that they could be like God themselves if they ate of the one forbidden tree. And told him too, he says, when you eat of this tree... God told you you would die, but you won't die. So two accusations. God is holding back. He likes to keep you under control. Second one, he's not somebody that tells the truth all the time. And those slanderous notions of God have permeated humanity. The truth is you can remember probably back in your life. I certainly can remember back in my life where I didn't really want anything to do with God. And anytime somebody brought the notion of God up, I wanted to change the subject really quick because I had this conclusive notion that God was just going to ruin the fun that I was having in my life. That if I, that if I opened my mind to think about God at all, he, he didn't really understand me. He didn't really care about my happiness. And he was going to box me in, steal the fun out of my life, say, don't do this, do that, and just ruin life. I, I was completely one that didn't think God was trustworthy. Of course, I didn't know anything about him. And I was very uncomfortable in his presence because I knew one thing. If anybody had done things that a real God, a good God, would have to be against, I certainly had quite a list of those. And so we are uncomfortable because we don't know that he's loving, that he's forgiving, that he likes us, really likes us, enjoys us, doesn't enjoy the things we do to ourselves to destroy us. Of course not. But he likes us. So here's some evidences, some further evidences. Because here's the thing I want you to understand. What many tragically don't understand, whenever I do a message on Easter, I usually do these these evidences. What many don't understand is that that this is rooted in history. This is a real event. This is not something that people just fancy uh, fancied up in their minds. It's not something you can just kind of take or leave. You either really believe the compelling evidence that Christ, the creator, came to this earth, lived a sinless life, died a sacrificial death, and rose uh, rose again, or you are face-to-face with calling him and the record, a lie. And that's a serious thing. There's no in-between, not actually. So here's some evidences for the actual resurrection. First of all, they put a Roman seal on that tomb. Roman seal, no one in that day would dare mess with a Roman seal on anything because the Roman imperial army was feared by all. They dominated the world. 
The tomb was empty except for the grave clothes. And there's a scripture that gives an interesting spin on that, that, that the head garments, the head wrappings were set aside. It sounds as if the rest of the wrappings were just collapsed like a cocoon. The soldiers were gone. This was a Roman guard. Let me tell you something. Roman guards did not run away from their post. If they did, they could face execution. If you read the record, it says that the Jews went and said, we'll give you money if you'll tell a false story and we'll cover for you so you don't get in trouble. But the Roman soldiers, something had to happen to chase these Roman soldiers away. The scripture explains it was the appearance of an angel and a massive earthquake. The unexplained massive stone move. This stone weighed probably about two and a half tons, and yet it was tossed away. Uh, Hardly the thing that a, a group of ladies would likely easily do. Radical change in two skeptics and one enemy. Who am I talking about skeptics? Do you remember Thomas? Thomas, after Jesus had appeared from the dead to his disciples, Thomas was not there. And Thomas said to them, I'm not buying it. I don't believe it. I'm not going to believe it at all unless I can put my hands right into the wounds in his hands where the nails were and into the wound in his side where they stuck that spear. I'm not believing it. Jesus appears one week later to the disciples and Thomas. And Thomas just buckles. He just buckles. Because Jesus says, go ahead, Thomas, put your hand in my wounds. Put, put it in my side. He still had the wounds. He still had the scars. And Thomas, the skeptic, says, my Lord and my God. And he rightly said that. The other skeptic I mentioned already, it was James. It was Jesus' half-brother. When Jesus was alive, you know, you know, sibling rivalry kind of a thing, he was not Jesus' follower. But when he saw him alive from the dead, he not only converted to Jesus, he became a, a, a leader in the church in Jerusalem. And then the one enemy, it's the actual writer of that 1 Corinthians 15, Paul. He sought to destroy Christianity, but Jesus, risen from the dead, appeared to him and said, I want you to serve me. And you're going to go through a lot of rough things in serving me. And so this man, the Apostle Paul, did. He served Jesus for 30 years. He was beaten numerous times, imprisoned numerous times, and finally died a martyr's death. And he stayed faithful to the one that he saw alive from the dead until his last breath. And like I said a minute ago, he appeared not just one time or or a couple times, over 40 days. At one point, there was 500 eyewitnesses. The change in day of worship, Jews were strict Sabbatarians. In other words, they, they worshiped only on Saturday. They would be very afraid, and yet we find them meeting on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, because that's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. That's why we still traditionally meet on Sunday. It's not that it's one day is any better than another. It's just that this is why we do it. And then the transformation of the disciples. I don't know if you know the story or not, but when Jesus was first arrested and he didn't resist arrest, they panicked. They ran. Peter even denied that he knew Jesus three different times. With cuss words, he denied him. But once they saw Jesus alive, they were transformed individuals. They went and they faced the very ones that had crucified Jesus. They told them, you have crucified the the Messiah, and if you don't change your mind about your life, you're going to face a judgment by this same one. That was also one of Jesus' claims, that he would be the one that raises the dead, that he would be the one that would judge every man, woman, and child that's ever lived. He also claimed that he had the power to give eternal life, forgiveness of sins, everlasting life, to anyone that would put their trust in him and become his follower. These were big claims, and his resurrection from the dead substantiated every claim, every promise that he made. For once in human history, human beings saw that the life that we always really wanted was possible. 
Often in here, I will urge people to do something that we rarely are urged to do by society. You know, our society wants us to just stay busy, to stay distracted. We are the most busy and distracted society that the planet has ever seen. About 108 billion people have lived and died on this planet. We are the first generation that's ever been this distracted, and it's meant to be so. And so it's rare that we get time to do what most of the human beings that ever lived and died on this planet normally did. The 108 billion or so that lived and died, most of them had time and space, didn't have the distraction. You know, there was no technology or anything like that. And they would think about these desires that are deeply embedded in each of us. You may not even know you have these desires because you've grown up in this distracted society. But deep inside you, there is a desire for a perfect kind of a world where everybody's loved, everybody's respected, everybody's cared for, where you and your kids can walk anywhere, at any time, anywhere in the world and be safe, where you don't need any door locks of any kind anywhere. There's no need for armies. There's no need for police. There's no need for doctors and hospitals deep inside of you. Let your imagination and your desires rise to the top. God's imprinted this in all of us. There's a desire, there's a longing for a beautiful, eternally wonderful world. And you desire not to die. Not one of you desires to die. You desire to live. And if you thought it were possible, you desire to live forever with full vigor, with full health, with increasing happiness through the eons of time and into eternity. That's what's in you. Where did it come from? Where did these desires come from? Desires that nothing in this world can satisfy. Well... Jesus, while he was on earth for those three and a half years of ministry, he demonstrated that he himself had the power to provide that exact kind of lifestyle. No more sin, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death, no more evil, which is ultimately the cause of it. But, but how do we know that he really wants me to come the way I am? I, I mean, you know, the, the way we feel is that I, I have to clean myself up, I have to improve myself, I have to get religious, I have to do some deeds, some good deeds of some sort. How do we know? That he will actually take us just as we are. Well, Jesus said these words in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. It says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you what? I'm not going to ask you, but I guarantee you, many of us in this room say, Man, I would do anything to just rest this mind of mine, to just have some peace of mind, some peace of soul. Jesus says, If you'll come, I want you to come and I'll give you rest. He goes on and say this. He says, take my yoke on you and do what? Learn from me. The yoke was either something you put on an ox's neck in those days, but primarily it was used of Jewish teachers, rabbis, which Jesus was one, and it meant take my form of teaching upon you. Take it to heart. Take my yoke on you and learn from me. Why? Why, Jesus? Why, why should I learn about you? Why should I learn from you? Because I'm gentle and humble in heart. This is the good news. This is the gospel. Our God, the creator, the almighty, is gentle and humble. And he likes us. And he just wants us to be teachable. I'm gentle and humble in heart. And you will find what? Rest for your what? And again, I know, man, I'm human like you. Rest for your soul is not an easy thing to come by in life the way it is. So here's one clear verse that says we can know that Jesus wants us to come to him just as we are. Listen to his words in John 6, 37, the Gospel of John. He says, all that my Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will most certainly not do what? Not cast out. I will never, never reject anyone who does what? Listen to me. 
Some of you hear me say this frequently. Some of you might be new here this morning. Everybody's following somebody. Everybody. You may say to yourself, well, I'm not following anybody. I, I, I do my own thing. I'm a self-originated person. You're following yourself. Everybody's following somebody. Do you really think following yourself is better than following Jesus, the creator of the universe, the one who loves us enough to enter into death to prove it? It's something we all have to decide about. There's another verse I'd like to share with you. John 10, he says, and I give them eternal life. Notice it's a gift. We don't earn it. We don't work for it. It's a free gift. I give them eternal life, and they shall never lose it or perish throughout the ages. To all eternity, they shall never by any means be destroyed. This is what Jesus says to anyone that will come to him. But notice what else it said. It said, come and learn from me. Come and follow me. That requires trust. I'm not going to come to him, and I'm not going to learn from him, and I'm not going to follow him unless I actually trust him. And he has demonstrated by his life and his resurrection, especially his trustworthiness. As a psychiatrist, his name is Aaron uh, Curiarty, and he wrote an article in 2017, and it's called The Days of Despair. And in the article, he's dealing about the, the upsurge of suicides that we're encountering in uh, you know, nations like our own. And here's what he says. He says, over a 10-year span, it turns out that the one factor most strongly predictive of suicide is not how sick the person is, nor how many symptoms he exhibits, nor how much physical pain he is suffering, nor whether he is rich or poor. The most dangerous factor is a person's sense of what? Hopelessness. The man without hope is the likeliest candidate for suicide. But you have hopes in you, I have hopes in me, that nothing in this world can satisfy. But we suppress them. We just blend in with the crowd. We just make the best of the day. We just say, this is the way it is. You just make the best of it. You live as long as you can. You have as much fun as you can. That's all you can expect from life. But you have desires in you for a perfect world, eternal life, eternal health and vigor. You want everyone to be happy. You want everyone to be loved. It's in you. You want everyone to be healthy. Those are hopes that can't be fulfilled except by this one life that came into human history. And that's why two billion today stand strong in devotion to him. Are you amongst those? It's something we have to ask. Listen to these words from the same apostle Paul that we read earlier in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, for God was in Christ, God inside of Christ. In other words, we're seeing God as he really is in Christ. The Bible is a pro progressive revelation of God. He keeps revealing more and more and more about himself until finally he shows up in human form. The scripture continues to say throughout the New Testament that anyone looking at Christ is looking at God in all of his completeness, all of his fullness. For God was in Christ and then this next word, we need, we need to get a grip on this one. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's what? Sins against them. God comes with, with arms open wide, complete forgiveness. And he gave to us this wonderful message of what? Now reconciliation. Reconciliation is only needed when there's a broken relationship. It is, it is a relational term. And I mentioned to you earlier that the relationship between God and man was broken early on and we, we stopped trusting God. We didn't want to follow him. We didn't want to live his ways. We thought that he was holding back from us or that we could be happier by doing things our own way. That was the way I lived my first 23 years of my life, man. I thought I'd be a whole heck of a lot happier 
living the way I wanted to live rather than the way that God designed me to live, which turned out to be fallacy, of course. But reconciliation is different. Listen to me, because I'm, I'm going to share something with you, and, and it'll clarify something for you for the rest of your life. It is entirely different than religion. This book, the Bible, and the God that is the author of this book, he talks from cover to cover about his desire of reconciliation with human beings. We have broken trust in him. He wants only to rule over those that desire his rule. He wants only to lead those that desire his lead and who trust him. And he accepts us just as we are because it's impossible to have an authentic relationship with somebody unless we come honest and open just as we are. That's what God wants. The Bible and the God of the Bible wants reconciliation, a return of trust. Let me show you what religion is. It's entirely different. Look at all the rest of the religions in the world, compare them to biblical reconciliation, and they all have one thing in common. Every religion, I don't care what it is, Buddhism, Hinduism, you know, uh, Islam, it doesn't matter what they are. They all have one thing in common. It is human beings working very hard to gain, to win the approval, hopefully the mercy and the favor of some deity. Religion is performance. It's mercenary. It's me and you trying to save our skin. It's me and you realizing there probably is a big bad deity who created this whole universe, and I want him on my side, off my back. And so what do I have to do to earn his favor. Do I have to turn over a new leaf? Do I have to take a pilgrimage? Do I have to say prayers? What do I have to do? Let, let, let me give you an analogy to clear this up. Imagine you have been feeling pretty sick for a long time and you kind of sense, ah, oh, boy, I think this is bad. And so you go to the doctor and you express to the doctor, you say, doc, I've been feeling bad, you know, really bad for a long time. I, I, I think something's really wrong. The doctor says, okay, let's run a bunch of tests. And they run a bunch of tests and then the doctor says, well, frankly, it's not good news. You are, in fact, very sick. But then the doctor says to you, uh, so, now you have it. Go your way. And you say, wait, 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 wait a minute, doc. I, I came in here for help. And the doctor says, help? <laughs> you got to be kidding me. I can look at you and I can see you have abused your body probably for most of your life. You haven't done one single thing to make yourself healthy. You haven't tried to take care of yourself. Look at the condition you're in. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. In fact, get out of here. I will not take you as a patient until you go and fix yourself up. You go get healthy and come back, and then I'll take you as my patient. <laughs> now, you would run from a doctor like that, right? When you and I go to the doctor, we go just as we are. We don't really care how much we've abused our body, do we? We don't expect that doctor to say anything like that to us. I mean, we go to that doctor just as we are, dinged up, banged up, abused, whatever the heck it is, and we expect that doctor to take us just as we are, right? And then to fix us, right? All religion, all religion is human beings trying to fix themselves up, earn the favor of the deity Earn the favor of the doctor so that they can receive the benefits of the doctor. That's backwards. 
this book and the God who revealed himself in this book is about reconciliation. He says, the problem is I love you, but I cannot help you unless you trust me. I cannot help you unless you'll learn my ways. You, you've gotta learn the way I designed you to find life in its fullness, but you gotta trust me before you'll ever desire to do that. And I'm gonna do what I can to win your trust. I'm gonna come and live for 33 years, demonstrate my trustworthiness, even to the point of dying on a cross and rising from the dead, but then it's going to be up to you. Some of you are gonna trust me and choose me and follow me, and some of you are not, and I know that. So religion says, Fix yourself up and earn something. But you got to hear this because some of you are Christians. You're, well, you're sort of Christians. I'll put it like that. You're confused. You think you're Christians, but you're not. Because you're playing the same game, but you're doing it with formulas. You think that just because you, you said something like, oh, Jesus, come into my heart, or you came forward in a church service and prayed at an altar, you think that that's all God requires for you to believe the right things. Oh, I, I believe Jesus died for me and rose again. And you think that just belief in a formula or going through some ritual, that that reconciles you to God. It doesn't. It's a real relationship. He wants an authentic relationship. He has revealed himself to us as he really is and says, now, do you like me? Do you trust me? Do you want to follow me? And he demands that we come to him as we really are. And then we decide. And our lives will evidence if we really do like him. And if we really do trust him. And if we really are or are not following him. So that's, that's the, the kind of relationship that God created us for. So we can know that God wants us to come as where. It's the only way we can have an authentic relationship with him. And he's welcoming us he likes us we don't have to hide anything from him it's not like going to a doctor we can just reveal anything at all he's not shocked and he absolutely wants to help us to heal us to restore us to the image that he originally created us to wear now the second error that people have is you know once I come to him as I am and he accepts me as I am why doesn't he want me to stay as I am I meet people like this all the time Oh, Randy, it's all about grace. It's all about God's mercy, man. I, I'm never going to be good enough, so I'm not even going to try. I'm just a, I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm never going to be any different. So I came to God just as I am. I didn't hide anything. He knows I'm a blowout. I'm a waste. I'm a mess. And he loves me just like I am. That's true. But he doesn't love you so little. Follow me now. He doesn't love you so little that he can possibly leave you as you are. Let's go back to the doctor image again. You go to the doctor. He does an assessment. He tells you what your disease is. And then he says, have a good day. <laughs> Goodbye. Not the way you want it to go. You want him to fix you. But then, okay, so he fixes you. He does the surgical procedure. He does whatever's necessary. And now you're healthy. That doctor, if that doctor is worth anything, is going to tell you, now, listen to me, man. I want you to stay healthy and full of vigor. you got to get exercise and you got to eat clean. you got to stop smoking two packs of cigarettes a day. you got, you got to knock off getting boozed up every night. Whatever the heck it is, he's going to tell you, I love you enough to fix you as you are, but I want you to be happy and healthy, and I'm not going to leave you as you are. You can't keep doing the same things. And that's the way God love, God's love is for us. Listen to what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that same apostle Paul, he says about Jesus, he said, he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for who? Themselves. Because that's going to destroy me. I, I, don't, I don't know what I'm doing. No longer live for themselves, but for who? Him who died for them and was raised. There's that resurrection again. 
That, that's his goal, is to convert me, to change my mind, to get to the place where I so trust him and I so desire his ways and his will that I live for him instead of living for me and by my ways and my will. I'm just going to ask you a blunt question. How many of you have experienced some, some pretty big consequences in your life because you did things your way? Can I just see your hands a moment of honesty? And a loving God wants to save us from continuing that for the rest of our lives. He loves us and receives us as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us as we are. That would not be love. That would be kind of a demented love. That, that would be an enabling love, enabling us to continue to destroy ourselves. Listen to these words from Jesus himself in John chapter 8. He said, says Jesus spoke again, and he said, I am the light of the world, the one who, what does it say? follows me if we're not following him the one who follows me will never walk in darkness in other words we'll know the way we were designed to live because he'll teach us that from his word but we'll have the light of life he goes on to say this he says if you continue to follow my what can't follow his teaching if you don't know his teaching, right? Where do you find his teaching? You find his teaching in his book. For 26 years of this church, man, we have begged, pleaded, coerced, done everything we know how for you to study this book on your own. You can understand it. We're, there's great study tools. God wants you to understand it. I don't want you just trusting in what I teach you. I want you to be able to stand on your own two feet. If you continue to follow my teaching, you are really my disciples, another word for followers. And then he makes a promise. If you continue in his teaching, you'll, you'll come to know experientially the truth, and the truth will set you, what is the word? Now, we use this as a little cliche. You, you find it in a lot of movies and things and all like that today, but nobody really knows what the heck Jesus said was setting us free from for the most part. You want to know what he was talking about, that if we followed his teaching, what we would be set free from? How many would like to know what he said he's going to set us free from? Can I see your hands? You're, you're a little scared. You don't want to know, do you? Well, here's the rest of his words. Jesus answered them, I tell you the solemn truth, everyone who practices what? Sin is just self-destructive living. It is living contrary to the way the creator designed us. Sin is living in a way that no one can have safety, happiness, harmony, eternal life impossibility. We'll, we'll just have what we have now. He says, I tell you the truth, everyone who practices sin is a what? Slave to sin, imprisoned, habits, addictions, whatever you want to call it. So he's talking about setting people free from sin. So if the son, that's him, sets you free, you will really be free, but free from what? Can you say it? Sin. Oh, shoot. I thought he just forgives our sins, and he knows we're dinged up and we're not going to be perfect. He doesn't really intend us to get that serious about this stuff. He actually empowers those that put their faith in him and become his followers. He empowers us to increasingly be free of sin. Why? Because he loves us. Sin is sand of the interior machinery. It's, it's destroying us. It's destroying society. It hurts everybody we love and care about. It diminishes the beautiful person that God wants to resurrect inside of us. And Jesus absolutely can set you free. And if you're one of those rascals that fills church seats and argues for your right to sin because God's grace is so good, you, my friend, are deceived. You want to do something destructive to yourself that proves to me you have not been saved from sin. You don't even want to be. 
You say, Randy, come on, man. You, t- you saying we can be sinless perfect? It's not what I said. But if you don't have the desire to be sinless perfect because you actually trust Christ, there is something wrong. You haven't been reconciled to God the way that he intends it to be. So you think that one through, churchgoer. Uh, that, that's an important thing for us to consider. Now, now why? why? Why does he want all this for us? John 15, 11, Jesus says, I've told you these things so that you can have the same joy I have and that your joy may what? What does it say? Be, come on, let's do it together. May be the what? Fullest possible joy. Every human being wants the fullest possible joy. We do stupid things to try to find the fullest possible joy. We think it's going to give us the full, fullest possible joy, and it ends up kicking us in the rear again and again and again. Jesus says, listen, I created you. I loved you. I've died for you to prove it. I've designed you. I know exactly what you need. You can have the fullest possible joy when you align your life with the laws of your being that I created in you. Become my follower. Learn my teaching. Trust me. And you'll see. And then those promises. And you'll have eternal life with me in my kingdom. A kingdom where there's no sickness, sorrow, pain, or death. Easter is about all of that. It's the greatest story ever told. It's the most meaningful event in history. Let me close with a story of a guy named Larry Taunton. He's a Christian writer and a debater uh, who went through a series of debates with a guy named Christopher Hitchin, who was also a really well-known writer. He died in 2011 of esophageal cancer. But um, he was a well-known author and debater, and he, he wrote a book you may have heard of called God is Not Great. This guy was a militant. Christopher Hitchens was a militant atheist. Uh, he, was, he called himself not just an atheist, but an anti-theist, meaning he was utterly against the very notion or idea of God. And Larry Taunton uh, debated him, uh, you know, Larry Taunton, of course, taking the Christian position. And um, as time would have it, they, they had a couple of these debates and became friends. And, and then Christopher Hitchens asked Larry Taunton if he would continue to set up debates with other Christian thinkers. He, he really wanted to rip Christianity to shreds, and Larry Taunton did that for him. And years went by, and they, they became friends. Here's this staunch anti-theist and this deeply devoted intelligent Christ follower and yet they become friends well suddenly Christopher Hitchens came down with as I said esophageal cancer and his whole life got turned topsy-turvy and they continued their friendship and at one point they were taking a road trip together they actually took two long road trips together Um, Hitchens had spent some nights at uh, Taunton's house that's how close they were but I want to read you this is a real dialogue that went on between the two of them. This is a discussion as they're in a car, they're going through the Shenandoah area of the country. He says, my mind goes back to the Shenandoah. The skies are clear, the autumn leaves are translucent in the early, uh, early afternoon sun, and the road ahead of us is open. In a strong, clear voice, Christopher is reading from the 11th chapter of the Gospel of John. This is the anti-theist, is reading from the 11th chapter of John's Gospel, which is the portion of Scripture where Lazarus had been dead for four days in a tomb, and Jesus comes and raises him from the dead. So he says, he's reading from the 11th chapter of the Gospel of John, reaching the 25th and 26th verses. His face lights up. This is the anti-theist. He knew the Bible. His face lights up with recognition. Let me show you what those verses say. And it was my mistake, but thank you for the quick switch. Here's what those verses said. Jesus said unto her, this is the sister of Lazarus. Lazarus has been dead for four days. Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. 
He that believeth in me, King James Version, you'll see why in a minute. Though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. And then Jesus says, believest thou this? Let me go back to the conversation. So he says, he's reading from John 11, verse 25 and 26, and his face lights up with recognition. He stops, and he says, I know this one too, he says. I did not recall the connection with the resurrection of Lazarus, however. It's a great verse, I add. This is Larry Taunton talking. Sensing we have reached a defining moment. Yes, Dickens thought so, Christopher says. And then, taking his reading glasses off, he turns to me and he asks, Do thou believe us this, Larry Taunton? His sarcasm is evident, but it lacks his customary force. Larry Taunton says, Of course I do, but you already knew that I did. The question is, Do you believe us thou this, Christopher Hitchens? As if searching for a clever repost, he hesitates and he speaks with unexpected transparency. And then this quote, I'll admit that it's not without appeal to a dying man. He knew he had esophageal cancer. He knew his time was numbered. And he had to acknowledge. Now, do not misunderstand. There is no indication at all that Christopher Hitchens ever turned to Christ, ever was reconciled to God, ever put his faith in Christ and became his follower. He died an anti-theist. But the truth is, not trying to get morbid on you, the truth is, we're all dying. He said it has an appeal to a dying man because there's a yearning in each of us to live forever, to live in a world and have a life way better than this one. No more sickness, sorrow, pain, or death. No more anxiety, no more insecurity, no more self-loathing, no more guilt, no more shame, no more regret. We, earn, we earn, yearn for that. We want it. But we don't think it's possible, so we don't think about it. But Jesus' resurrection says, yes, it is. We're all dying people. We just don't know when. So, we're going to leave here today. All of us are going to walk out the doors. And we're going to leave here as followers, authentic followers of someone. Ourselves? I don't know, maybe some other philosopher, some other religious figure. Or followers of this one that gave compelling evidence that he is actually the creator of this universe. Now we're going to close with a song. Don't want you to leave. Don't want you to run out the doors. You, you know, you'll be fine. You know, if you, uh, you wait, you know, you're not going to get jammed in the parking lot anymore and you're normally going to get jammed. But give the Spirit of God one opportunity while your mind is focused and your heart maybe, maybe is soft with humility. Give God a chance to speak to you and I'm going to come back and close this out.
Lay down your heart, lay down your burden. 
that's my heart's desire that each one of us you know who you are you know where you're at in life that you will this day maybe you've been following Christ for a long time maybe you've never maybe this is your first time you will come as you are he loves you he is for you he is the only one that can give you what your heart's desires really are so to that end let's pray Father, you know all the fears, all the shame, all the doubts we have. You know all the struggles, all the blame shifting, all the reasons we have not to follow you fully, freely, forever. May the Spirit of God abolish them all. May we leave here today in mass as fully devoted followers of you who has proved yourself trustworthy by your life, your miracles, your death, your claims, and your rising from the dead. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, the one in whom are all our hopes, we pray. Amen.